This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. John Simons. Uh, This guy is the reason, if I do graduate from TEDS, he will be the reason. I go to him with all my questions, and he helps me out a ton. Uh, If you're a TED student listening to this, just disregard that he's I need him uh, as much as I can get, so uh, no one else take advantage of that. But uh, Dr. John Simons has a law degree from the University of Florida, um, the College of Law there. He's practiced law for 10 years, and then he went on to do a master's at RTS Orlando, where one of my uh, heroes, John Frame, is. He took some classes with him there. And then he came to do his PhD uh, in church history here at TEDS with uh, Dr. Doug Sweeney. And so uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about his dissertation, a little bit about uh, history in general, and uh, particularly the uh, the Puritans. So without further ado, Dr. Simons, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for inviting me, Parker. Uh, you're you're going to keep me busy with that intro and uh, such high praise. So <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so I thought... As we jump in, uh, I thought it would be interesting to just find out, you know, what what is a Puritan? Sure. So, you know, and one of the things in history, if you want to really start a a lively debate is to ask, Mm -hmm. how do you define Puritanism? It Mm -hmm. is, according to one historian, it is a common parlor game amongst historians to define Puritanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Puritanism is a reform movement that started in the Church of England and that, uh, was seeking to purify the Church of England from, and I'm going to use the Puritan phrase, from popish influences mm. in uh, the Church of England. So if you go back to the time of Henry VIII, uh, the Church of England was a, a, the Church in England was a Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, we could get into a really long conversation about uh, Henry VIII's decision to split from Rome. But suffice it to say that he made England a Puritan, uh, I'm sorry, a Protestant country. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really kept it fairly close to what the Roman Catholic Church practice had been. He he kind of moved back and forth a little bit from a little bit more towards the Protestant side and a little bit more towards the um, keeping it close to the Roman Catholic side. Mm. Uh, at his death, Edward VI, his young son, became uh, king but was too young to rule. And so uh, England was ruled through regents. And the regents who ruled uh, for Edward VI uh, were heavily influenced by the Protestant movement in continental Europe, and so began to shift towards uh, greater reform within the Church of England. Uh, Edward did not uh, reign for very long. He died uh, at a young age, and his half-sister Mary became the queen. Yes. Uh, Mary, for a number of reasons, returned England to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um and this is Bloody Again, Mary, we right? Have a long, her, she, her nickname is Bloody Mary. Yeah. Uh, she uh, put to death about 300 Protestants mm. uh, for heresy. Um, I read an article recently that suggests that the name Bloody Mary may not be entirely fair. Her father put far more people to death, mm. um, some of them for religious reasons, but most of them for political reasons. And Elizabeth, who followed Mary, so Mary reigned for a little while. Uh, and then at her death, uh, Elizabeth, actually at her, uh, uh, yeah, so Elizabeth became queen. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth took a middle road because Elizabeth was politically savvy enough to say, okay, mm. if I go full on Protestant, I have a number of people in the country, larger people in the country who really are, are attached to the Catholic Church mm-hmm. uh, and who are going to protest and perhaps revolt. If I have, if I go full on Roman Catholic, then all of these Protestants are going to 
protest and perhaps revolt. And so she took the via media, the, the middle road, which mm -hmm. has really defined the church in England and the Anglican movement uh, since then. And so um, that what was Queen Elizabeth's approach to the Church of England. But that really dissatisfied some people within the Protestant camp. They, they felt that her compromise uh, allowed too much uh, of the Roman ceremonies, uh, Roman Catholic ceremonies to remain part of the Church of England. They did not like, for example, wearing the um, clerical robes that were part okay. of it. And some of them refused to wear the surplus. Um, some of them disliked, for example, the policy that if somebody lived within your parish, you were expected to baptize them and wanted mm -hmm. to limit baptism to the children of believers mm -hmm. and wanted to um, also limit communion to those who had professed faith and who could explain the basis for their faith. Uh, whereas the uh, Church of England model was to anybody who lived within the parish could come once a month and take communion. Hmm. And so um, the Puritans within the Church of England started as a renewal movement that wanted to pursue godliness uh, more carefully and to um, pursue biblical religion. And Puritanism, the, the name Puritan actually started as an epithet yeah. That they were trying to purify the church. So they were these horrible Puritans <laughs> who just couldn't let it be. Um, the Puritans would refer to themselves as the godly um, or the brethren or, or something along those lines. Um, and like um, the pietists in Germany, for example, they would have smaller groups within their churches who would gather to study, to talk to each other, to try to help them pursue uh, greater purity of life, uh, greater um, discipline in, in their own faith, uh, greater allegiance to, to the word of God. Okay. Well, that's really, that's a really helpful, uh, definition there for us. Was this, uh, I am terrible. This is why I like philosophy and not uh, history. I like history. I'm just terrible at it. And uh, dates and, uh, so I won't hold that against you. <laughs> thanks. Where were the, uh, like the nonconformists were, were they before the Puritan, like, like John Owen and those, those cats, uh, were they no, John Owen what was later. So, so the, the, the early movement that we're talking about, we're talking about in the 1590s, early 1600s. Oh, early. Okay. I want to say, if I remember correctly, oh, don't quote me on these dates. Uh, so William Perkins is one of the early influences on the Puritan movement. I want to say he died in about 1605, which is about the same time that Queen Elizabeth died and King James I came in to reign uh, in England. Okay. Uh, um, James was, I believe, a nephew of Elizabeth who had been the king in Scotland, and, and he united England and Scotland when he ascended to the throne in England. Um, and, and so there's a discussion of Elizabethan Puritanism under the reign of, of Queen Elizabeth in the 1590s. Uh, and then you talk about um, Stuart Puritanism is talking about uh, the House of Stuart. So that's James and Charles and then later Charles II. Okay. Under Charles I, so in the 1640s, there is a civil war, a series of civil wars in England between um, the House of Commons, which was lar largely influenced by Puritans, mm -hmm. and Charles, who was not a Puritan, uh, was very much opposed to Puritan reforms uh, and took a more Arminian, uh, if not even a crypto-Catholic type of a slant mm -hmm. in the Church of England. There are some debates on, on where he fell. Yeah. Um, Charles was eventually arrested, tried, uh, eventually is beheaded for treason, wow. um, which, you know, as King of England, he's, he has a hard time understanding how he can possibly be guilty of treason Yeah, because he, is, he the is the king. <laughs> However, uh, in the eyes of the parliament and of the judges who tried him, he was conspiring to bring Irish troops mm. to wage war against English troops. So therefore was guilty of treason. Mm. Um, Charles w was a sneaky uh, king trying to, to pull everything he could to uh, win the war and to gain influence. Um, and so during um, that period from 1640 to the end of um, Cromwell's leadership over England, so I'm not going to use the word reign because he wasn't king, um, you have the Commonwealth period or the Protectorate period. Um, Owen is very active. He is a chaplain to Cromwell during the civil wars. 
and, and so that period. And then in the 1680s, so after Charles II uh, steps down from the throne in favor of um, William and Mary, who come over uh, in the Glorious Revolution, 1689, I believe, is the Glorious Revolution, they then pass um, Acts of Toleration. And so the Acts of Toleration say you don't have to be a member of the Church of England. You can practice certain other forms of Christianity. If I remember correctly, Roman Catholicism is clearly not allowed because okay. there are still concerns that the Jesuits are trying to overthrow uh, the monarchy in order to bring England back into the, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. I think Quakerism is still uh, not allowed in England because it is seen as a little bit too far out there, a little bit too revolutionary. Um, but other than that, there's a broader range of practice that's allowed. So the nonconformists are those who are allowed to practice their faith um, under the acts of toleration, but are not conforming to the Church of England. Um, okay. and, and at this point, they're finally legal in England. Under Charles II, the nonconformists had been thrown in jail for not conforming. Uh, to Anglican practice. Wow. So, so 1689. So that means the the Baptists are allowed to uh, to do their London thing with the 1689 Confession, and the 1646 right. Westminster is, is established. So, would were were the nonconformists? I, I know that this is way off off topic here. Were the nonconformists uh, their own like denomination, or would technically would the the Baptists and the Presbyterians equally be nonconformists? So the Presbyterian, oh, man, we're, we're, we're going all I'm over sorry. the place here. Sorry. So the, the, the Presbyterians uh, are largely based in Scotland. Okay. Uh, there are some English Presbyterians, but the Church of Scotland is a Presbyterian uh, body. Yeah. And so 1640s, when the Westminster Assembly is meeting, um, because that, the... England, isn't, it? isn't that England? It is in England. Yeah. So, so they're meeting in uh, Westminster Abbey in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, trying to come up with uh, some guidelines for the Church of England. So as part of the, the revolution, at, at a, even before Charles I is beheaded, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, William Laud, has been arrested and tried uh, because of his uh, attacks against, um, in, in, in the eyes of Puritans, in the eyes of Bible-believing Christians, um, uh, and, and so the Puritans, one of the things they want to do in England is they want to reform the church of England. Mm -hmm. They want to make, make sure that there is good biblical preaching, uh, in every pulpit. Uh, it was something that the Puritans had been trying to do, uh, through above board means and through some, uh, deceit and trickery, uh, means mm -hmm. as well to, to work, to, to fight against what they saw as tyranny within the church of England. Um, and so the Westminster Assembly is how do we come up with guidelines for approving biblical preachers? Uh, there's a really interesting book by, um, oh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I can remember. He uh, is now on the faculty at Westminster in, in Philadelphia. Chad Van Dixhorn, I believe is his name, okay. um, on, the pure, on preaching and, and how the Westminster Assembly tried to really ensure good preaching. Um, and that was one of the things that throughout the entire Westminster Assembly, they are um, approving preachers. Uh, so people who want to be in the pulpit are coming in front of um, this committee of the assembly and giving sermons, being uh, interrogated effectively about their doctrine and making sure that they are capable of leading churches in England. Uh, and at the same time that's going on, there's a separate committee that is working to develop the confession of faith and the catechisms, that, which is what we know about, uh, about mm -hmm. Westminster for the most part, are, are these Westminster standards. Um, so the Commonwealth needs the support of Scotland in the civil wars against Charles. Um, and the way that they get uh, Scottish support is they agree to bring Scottish Presbyterians to participate in the Westminster Assembly. Uh. And over the course of the assembly, they begin to kind of take... Uh, more influence and push the Westminster Confession in a Presbyterian direction. Oh. And, and in particular, um, the uh, Book of Order that comes out of the Westminster Assembly is, is very much uh, leaning in the direction of Puritanism. If you look oh. at the Baptist statement of um, 1689, 
it's very similar in doctrine <laughs> He's to the Westminster Assembly. Yeah. Um, but what's different is the anything that relates to church order and church governance, mm-hmm. they've adjusted to Baptist practice and Baptist faith. Yeah. Yeah. Ordinances instead of uh, sacraments, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And of course, baptism. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really helpful. So uh, you got you got Puritans uh, helping to shape things over there in, in London. Why did they ever end up leaving and coming to uh, to the New World? Yeah. So going back to the sixteen early 1600s, James becomes the king uh, in England. And um, James has grown up in Scotland, under the Church of Scotland, under good Presbyterian influence. And the Puritans start to get really hopeful hmm. that this James, you know, He's a, he's a good Presbyterian lad. He'll come help us get Reformation going in England and get us to purify the church again. Mm-hmm. James um, holds a conference at Hampton Court, so at one of his, his uh, palaces. And these Puritans come and say, you know, what we really need, James, is we need good reforms. We need to um, purify the church of these influences we need to get good bishops who understand the importance of biblical teaching. We need to get good preachers throughout England. And James says, yeah, no, we're not going to do that because you Puritans don't like bishops. And if you don't like bishops, that means you probably don't trust kings either. Mm. And so if I let you start to shape the Church of England, I'm going to have a revolt and you're going to undermine my authority as king. But I tell you what, let's compromise. I'll give you a new translation of the Bible. Uh, and then we'll just call it even, okay? This is where the King James Bible comes from. James at the Hampton Court Conference promises a new translation um, that will be a better translation what, than what they currently have. And all of a sudden, all the Puritans say, wait, this is, wasn't what we hoped for. And by the 1630s, um, they're beginning to see that not only is James not interested in, in furthering reform, but he's also beginning to increasingly side with the Arminian forces that are within uh, the Church of England. Mm-hmm. He is promoting people like William Laud, who um, uh, becomes the Bishop of London and then the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's beginning to use the Star Chamber Court to prosecute um, non-conforming uh, Puritan pastors who refuse to wear the surplus or who refuse to sign off on um, statements of the king's authority over the Church of England Hmm. um, and and are pushing against um, the growing Arminian power within the Church of England. And so these Puritans begin to say, okay, maybe we need to get a little bit of distance from the king and try again. Uh, And so in 1630 is when this migration begins. And you can go read, um, you know, some of John Winthrop's uh, journal entries really talk about you know, he, he's beginning to give up hope on, on, on the prospects of reform in England. And so um, in the lead up to the six, early 1630s, several Puritans are buying into the Massachusetts Bay Company, which was originally just a trading company that was uh, going to get a lease of land from Virginia and start a new colony. And they turn it from just another trading colony to a self-governing colony. Hmm. Uh, they kind of sneak the charter for the corporation uh, with them on the boat uh, to bring it to North America so that it's a little bit harder for the king to revoke their charter. If he can't get his hands on it, how can he revoke it? Huh. Um, and so they be, they come over and they um, s- establish the colony in Massachusetts, starting uh, in the Boston area and spreading out from there. They happen to be right next to uh, the... Um, Plymouth Colony, which is just uh, kind of on Cape Cod, what's today Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so these two colonies are working together. Um, where my research focuses on Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Connecticut is interesting because you have some uh, colonists who are in Massachusetts. They're in uh, what's today Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time was called Newtown uh, message. They start, started a new town and, and didn't come up with a very original name. <laughs> That's really nice. Um, new town. But then they changed the name to Cambridge. Uh, so Thomas Hooker was the pastor there. Mm-hmm. There were some disputes over whether they had enough good farmland because they were so close to Boston on one side uh, and some other towns on the other side. And so this entire town effectively migrates 
from what's today Cambridge, Massachusetts down to Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and two other towns in Massachusetts likewise move into along the Connecticut River, and, and you wind up with these three towns forming the colony of Connecticut. Without permission from the King of England, they effectively buy land uh, and a piece of land that is disputed between the English and the Dutch. Huh. And then you get this other group that's led by John Davenport, who's a, a pastor, and his friend Theophilus Eaton, who's a uh, merchant. Uh, and they come into Massachusetts. They're greeted warmly and said, oh, you know, here, we'll find a town for you. Where do you want to settle with you and your group of, uh, of friends? And they look at a couple sites in Massachusetts, but then they decide to buy this land in what is today New Haven, Connecticut. And so they form the town of New Haven. Uh, which becomes a separate colony. And so mm. New Haven in Connecticut kind of started these wildcat colonies without official license from, from England. Uh, they just kind of buy the land from the local population. Um, there were not very many Indians left in that region because, you know, when the English come to uh, New England, they bring with them English diseases, mm. uh, smallpox, smallpox, influenza, uh, that the native population has no immunity against. Hmm. And so by the time 1636, 1637, um, as these new colonies are being founded, the viruses have spread through that region and, and left them largely uninhabited. Wow. And so they move into these areas to form new colonies. Wow. Okay. So, wow, there's so much there. Uh, so <laughs> the... Well, you you focus your dissertation focuses on Connecticut and New Haven and and the Puritan magistrates, and so right. they come over here and they have these new settlements and they're kind of underhanded and they're kind of doing their own thing, but they they set up these magistrates to set laws and uh, give order to the society. Can you just explain for us uh, what what's a magistrate? Yeah, so I mean, every society has to have somebody whose job is to make the rules mm-hmm. and enforce the rules. Um, and, and broadly speaking, we call that role uh, the, the role of the magistrate. Um, it, um, yeah, so the, in early modern society, that was a common term. And so it would include the governor, but it would also include a, a role known as assistants. Uh, and, and sometimes some, some other roles were there as well. And so um, this group of men uh, would be elected out of the local towns to govern the colony and to make policy decisions for the colony, what we call laws, uh, but also to handle business decisions on behalf of the colony, uh, to negotiate with neighboring colonies for cooperation, to resolve disputes with neighboring colonies, uh, and to govern internal affairs and to prosecute crimes. Uh, And so these magistrates are basically the civil authorities over the colonies. And and to a lesser extent also, there are a different set of leaders who are uh, governing each town, which could also be called a magistrate, uh, but tend to be selectmen or something else like that. Aldermen might be some other terms that would be used um, okay. for the town representatives. Are, are they being held to um, like elder standards? Uh, is there like, is there like biblical qualifications that are being brought in or is it, is it not that thought through? It is thought through. Um, there are, so Usually, I don't know if it's every single time, but usually when they have an election day, um, they would also have one of the local pastors be selected to give an election sermon. Hmm. And so a lot of times these sermons would say, what's it mean to be a godly ruler? Uh, And uh, uh, a a scholar by the name of T.H. Breen has looked at some of these sermons and talked about what is the idea of a godly ruler in uh, New England based on these election day sermons. Uh, and, and they're drawing on ideas from English Puritanism, but also uh, from, from their own uh, pastors in terms of, you know, how what expectations are there? They might look at some of the Old Testament passages related to Moses or to King David or to mm-hmm. Solomon for that. But they also might look at some of the issues for um, elders in the church. Um, but for um, they, they tend to kind of, I think, go more towards the kings and Old Testament rulers Interesting. Uh, a lot of times. And, and they're emphasizing godly character is, is, a, is a must for a leader in the church. But also you have to somebody who's a true Christian who is committed to, um, there's a passage in Isaiah that, that the magistrates are nursing mothers for the church. And so you're 
um, not only there to enforce the law on, on society, but also to help the church along and to assist the church. So I mentioned John Davenport earlier. Um, and if you want to cut me off, feel free if, no, if I get going. going too far. This is good. John Davenport wrote a treatise on um, what's the relationship uh, or how do we make decisions about this um, setting up this new colony? It's a treatise on civil government is what mm-hmm. it's called. Again, not the most creative title. Um, well, the Puritans, he, didn't they, they used to string these these treatises together, didn't they? Or maybe is that Reformed era? Uh, no, they do. And, and, and I don't remember the full title. The full title, you know, it, it's a treatise on civil government. And then it talks a little bit more about, you know, something about, you know, for a, a what should be the, the rules to, to govern a, a new society or something like that. Hmm. Um, I wish I had had the title in front of me, um, but but he writes and what he talks about are that you have the church on one hand and the state on the other hand as two coordinating spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. You don't need to see them as being opposed to each other, yeah. but you also don't want to see them being the same thing. Again, they are reacting to what they saw in England, yeah. and in England, the king having authority over the church and being able to appoint bishops meant that. Um, he was exerting too much influence over the church and effectively was corrupting the church. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you don't want the church having too much influence over the state because they would look at the Pope and say, okay, the Pope, one of his problems, there were many that they would cite, but one of his problems is he was exerting way too much influence in uh, the Reformation era over the Catholic monarchs yeah. and was telling, you know, having far too much say in who could become an emperor or a king, or what could they do? And that was creating problems as well. So they didn't want them to be conflated as a single entity, but they also couldn't conceive of them being completely separate. Uh, you know, Roger Williams and his separation of church and state yeah. hadn't come around yet, and the Puritans weren't ready to go that far. Okay, They were looking for some um, division between church and state, but mm-hmm. not as much as what Roger Williams or what later – um, thinkers w- would come up with certainly not as much as you know the, the re- by the time you get to the revolutionary uh, era in in North America uh, or by the U.S. Constitution, you know people talking about uh, a dividing wall just hadn't come around yet. That is interesting to find it in the in the early Puritans or the early American Puritans that they that they were interested in that because of what they're coming from and because of the Pope yeah. and the King. That's that's really interesting. It's it's. Something about the soil, man. We we like that stuff. Uh, well, no, you you have to be careful. You you can't. I, I think it's a little too far to say. Okay, it's about America's soil is all about you know religious freedom and all that. <laughs> right. But, you know you don't want to go too far down that road. Yeah. They're reacting to something without a doubt. The context they're coming out of is shaping the way they think about church and state relationships. Yeah. Well, um, what what do we what do we call them? Are they Congregationalists? Were they were they Presbyterians? Like what what do they what do they call themselves? Maybe. Um, they would I think call themselves. They would come to call themselves Congregationalists okay. because that was really became the New England way. They would talk about the New England way. Hmm. They would talk about themselves as being the church. Um, you know, one thing that was distinctive about the early churches in all th- all four of the Puritan colonies. So Plymouth, you could argue whether you call them a Puritan colony or a Pilgrim colony. Oh, Again, yeah, sure. we get into a really long debate over Pilgrims. whether they are Puritans or not. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the four New England colonies that lean, lean towards Puritanism, they all had congregational churches. Mm-hmm. They talked about the New England way. Um, as a matter of fact, Thomas Hooker uh, wrote a book, uh, The Sum of Church Discipline, I think it's called, if I remember correctly. Uh, he wrote it and, and put it on a ship to send it back to England to help influence um, the Westminster Assembly. Wow. So three of the pastors from New England, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, and John Davenport, were all invited to come back to England to participate in the Westminster Assembly. Hmm. None of them went because they had too much going on at home. Uh, but both Hooker and Davenport sent books across trying to influence the assembly in favor of congregational rule because they were not um, sold on the idea of Presbyterianism. Hmm. And for at least some people in New England, uh, the idea of giving up 
the power of each congregation to decide for themselves where they stood on issues, even to give it up to a presbytery was more than they were willing to do. Hmm. There were one or two towns that tried to start a Presbyterian church, but those kind of were not allowed. Um, and, and eventually the magistrates began passing rules. Like, okay, you can't start a church uh, unless you pass some tests. And one of them is you need to get the approval of, of, of some neighboring uh, clergy that, that, that you uh, need, a new t- need a new church. And we want you to at least come to us to get our blessing so that we can you know, make sure that we don't let any Presbyterians in. Well, that sounds a little bit like a presbytery. Uh, like it does you... a little bit, but but that that's as far as it goes. Is, okay. okay, yes, you need a church. Yes, uh, you're okay to go. Uh, later on, um, well, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, for example. So Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards lives a hundred years after the period we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He lives in Western Massachusetts, just north of Connecticut, and one of the things he gets in trouble for. Or, or gets an, into a controversy at least over is um, the church in Springfield, which is just down the road from Northampton where he is the pastor mm-hmm. uh, wants to bring in um, this, this man named Robert Breck to be their pastor. And he's concerned about Breck's theology and the consociation of the um, uh, pastors there in that region, in the Hampton uh, conference of churches there. Um, puts up a protest and says, you know, this really isn't the guy you want to bring. We don't approve of him. And, and the congregation eventually puts their protest and says, yeah, you don't have to. We're a congregation. Yeah. This is what congregation means. Hmm. We get to make this decision. You're going to have to live with Breck as the pastor. Hmm. Um, and, and there's kind of a kerfuffle that goes on between Ed- Edwards and, and some of the other uh, Western Massachusetts pastors. And there's this idea that maybe the Connecticut churches are a little bit more given to consociations of churches that behave a little bit more like a presbytery, but in Massachusetts, they don't go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in, even in Connecticut, they never really go very far down that road. And, and anytime that there's a dispute in uh, one church and neighboring churches try to come in and help, that one church says, yeah, don't meddle. Hmm. Um, so... Wow, that's that's so interesting. So today, today they're like Baptists or Congregationalists usually, right? Um, mm-hmm. Who who else? I guess who else today is a Congregationalist? No, there are a number of church. Well, okay, the Baptists are not direct lineal descendants of the Congregational churches, right? Right. In they just happen to be also right. the same rule. So there were the congregational churches as, as a movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there still are some congregational churches. Right, right. So, some of the movements that kind of connect to that are the United Churches of Christ. So, so the UCC uh, oh. has ties to, to historic congregationalism. Okay. Um, also, the uh, Unitarian churches come out of congregationalism to a large degree and, and follow congregational role. Interesting. Um but then there are a number of evangelical denominations that lean towards congregationalism. Yeah. The EFCA, so, so the denomination that is the um, parent organization for Trinity, um, is a um, congregational rule denomination, mm-hmm. um, uh, which makes denominational makes yeah. dynamics a little bit interesting. Yeah. Um, Baptists, as you say, are some of the uh, restorationist type churches. So the Stone Campbell movement, Disciples of Christ type churches tend to be um, more uh, leaning towards congregational role. Disciples of Christ. That's interesting. My One of my ancestors was uh, one of the founding me- members after he helped start Mormonism and then repented oh, of, wow. he's one of like the three, three names in the Mormon temple and then uh, repented of that, went to the Disciples of Christ and that denomination kind of spiraled later. But uh, yeah, some, yeah, some crazy family history in there. Interesting. We should talk about that sometime. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if I want all of that out there, but yeah. Well, but right, right. Yeah. Off air, we should talk about it sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conversation. There you go. There you go. So so there's still congregationalists out today, but yeah, that's interesting that is there a direct line from, from Puritans or did the Puritans did they go did they uh, get subsumed into Presbyterian American Presbyterianism or Theologically, yes. Organizationally, not so much. So the congregational churches are the direct 
descendants of the Puritan, early Puritan churches. Okay. And so if you were to go into New England and see a church that says congregational church on their sign, um, particularly if it's a very old church, it's very likely to be a, 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 a the direct, you know, oh. um, connection yeah. to th- these early uh, New England churches. I thought that they, I thought those kind of the, the mainline congregational churches like fused with uh, Anglican churches. Did that happen as well? I don't know all my, my church polity here. Right. So 1665, so, so this, this deals both with history and polity. Yeah. So 1665 is when um, Cromwell dies. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the monarchy is restored in England. Charles II is brought out of exile and back to London to, to reign as king, mm-hmm. uh, at least until the Glorious Revolution 20-something years later. Um, and, and he restores the church in England to the Church of England, uh, appoints a new Archbishop of Canterbury, sends um, forces over to Boston, and they take over uh, one of the churches in Boston to become an Anglican church for the new governor. Um, actually, it might have been 1662. My years might be off a little bit there. Uh, and, and so that brings Anglicanism into New England. Um, yeah, 1665 was a different year. 1665 is when Connecticut and New Haven finally merged after uh, the restoration of the monarchy. So 1662 is uh, what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, so that's the introduction of Anglicanism into uh, New England. And okay. some Congregationalists convert to Anglicanism. Um, but by and large, the the congregations maintain their congregational tie. Now, when you get to the 1730s, again, we're, we're kind of getting wide ranging in what we talk <laughs> about here. Yeah. So in the 1730s, again, uh, Jonathan Edwards' time period, George Whitfield's time period, mm-hmm. you get this wave of revivals in England and in New England and, and actually even further south in uh, the, col- the British colonies. Uh, we call it the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there begin to be some divisions in some of these congregational churches in New England. Um, some of them have a uh, what, what's called an old light pastor who doesn't really approve of the revivals. Mm-hmm. But some of his members become new lights and want to promote the revivals. And so some churches split as a result of the Great Awakening mm-hmm. over divisions over whether these awakenings were mere enthusiasm or were the work of God. Right. Um, but still, they're both st- both of the, the resulting churches would still be congregational churches, uh, for the most part. Um, so yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's helpful. It's so interesting to think through the the, the history there. So, uh, again, we're going so far afield from. So uh, thanks thanks for being stretched here, man. I'm stretching your limits here, but uh, <laughs> you've, you've been killing it. Even making distinction distinctions between uh, nineteen or sixteen. 65 and 62 that's been so great but uh so like edwards he's he's congregationalist mm-hmm. um but were they was he in like a denomination where he had because congregationalism they they have the authority within the the congregation so it seems to me i'm just thinking of this now that it seems like it's functioning like a non-denominational type church but they're they, they are congregational churches function very because they are so and non-denominational churches are by and large congregational churches. Mm. They don't use that label per se, but that's the, the, their church polity. Right. Right. Um, well, and ultimately, you know, what happens with Jonathan Edwards when he's kicked out of the church at Northampton is a result of congregational rule. Mm-hmm. The congregation uh, or the leadership of the congregation votes him out. Um, and then they can't find anybody else to come take over the, the pulpit. So they then actually, they, you know, would hire him to come and preach supply hmm. in the same church where they just fired him. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to say he did that for, for maybe a year before he, he took a position in um, Stockbridge, Massachusetts hmm. at the, at the Indian mission there. Um, actually, it was probably shorter than that, but, but, but for some period of time he's been fired. He's continuing to preach there because, well, he needs the income because he's got kids mm-hmm. uh, and they need somebody to fill the pulpit. So while he's looking for his next, uh, position and while the church is looking for their next minister, they kind of work out that this. That seems so awkward. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I that's yeah. I'm glad I'm not in that position right now. Um, so, Same. so 
this is something that we were talking about off air about uh, about New Haven and how some folks would say, if you want to see a true Puritan, look to, to New Haven. Can you kind of like repersonate yeah. for, for us? Sure. So, so, okay, we're bouncing back and forth yep, in time. Here. Yep, all so over we're going time. back to the 1630s, 1640s time period here. Okay. Um, because as you get later, there's this idea that the colonies are beginning to change. They're being shaped by a number of forces. But so in the 1630s, if you want to look at Puritan colonies, there's kind of the spectrum. Smack dab in the middle of the spectrum, the, the, the uh, 300 pound gorilla in the room is Massachusetts. It is by large, by far the largest of the four colonies that, that are in New England. Uh, it is the most influential of the colonies because of its size, because it has the best deep water port in Boston. Mm. Uh, and so it, it gets most of the trade through there. But because of its large size, because of the fact that it is such a trade port, it's also seen by historians as maybe not the most pure of the colonies because it has all these other things going on due to, due, due to these other factors. Oh, they're like vested interests and stuff like that. But, but there's just so much diversity going on because a lot of people will come through Boston who aren't Puritans, ah. but they're sailors on ships or they're Quakers trying to convert uh, Bostonites into Quakerism or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. Mm. Um, then you have, okay, uh, Plymouth, which is a little bit more conservative than um, Massachusetts. But are they really Puritans or are they separatists? Because Puritans at least said they weren't separating from the Church of England. Again, you get into a long debate over over, over distinctions on that. Right. The the, uh, colonists in um, Plymouth were were, were at least willing to call a spade a spade. And Church of England isn't for us. We reject it. We're we're a different and distinct church. Mm. Um, You have over on the kind of more progressive side of things, Connecticut. They're more moderate in a lot of respects. Um, you know, Massachusetts will not let you vote unless you're a member of a congregational church. Mm. Mass- uh, Connecticut says, oh, come on, let's not be quite that much of a stickler. As long as you're a permanent resident in our town, we'll let you vote. Now, we're, we're only going to let you be elected if you're a member of a church, but you can vote even if you're not, because you ought to have a say in how your town and your colony is run if you live there. Mm-hmm. And then, according to historians, uh, and I'm kind of channeling um, Perry Miller here, if you really want to see what Puritanism looks like in its most distilled, mm. um, undiluted, unadulterated form, you're going to look at New Haven because it's more removed f- from some of the other colonies a little bit geographically. It's a much smaller colony, so it's able to be more cohesive. Uh, and so there's this idea that um, New Haven is somehow the most Puritan mm-hmm. of the Puritan colonies um but that raises some really interesting questions uh down the road you start looking at what, what's happening in some of the colonies well you you mentioned so anyone who a lot of people at least my age thinking of puritans we're going to think witches and we're going to think probably slavery too when it comes yeah. to the witches you, you you brought up an interesting point about their their treatment of, of witches and heresy and and how it was different than the surrounding uh puritan yeah. colonies yeah so if you look at witch trials so, so First, a couple caveats that there are witchcraft and witchcraft trials and witchcraft executions are not isolated to New England. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are witchcraft trials going on in England, in Germany, in France and other in Italy and other parts of Europe. Um, And and really, we gravitate towards New England because there's some really vivid stories to be told, particularly at Salem. Um, But the, the number of witches tried and executed in New England or in, or in the Americas, even as a whole, pales in comparison to the number that, that are executed in some of these European areas. Interesting. Um, so, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is not a single witch was ever burned at the stake in New England. Mm. Um, you know, th- you have this image of witches being burned at the stake. Yeah. That's in, tends to be in Catholic countries, not in Protestant countries, certainly not in English speaking countries where hanging was the preferred method of execution for witches. Yeah. Um, actually after, um, Mary, I don't know that anybody was burned at the stake anymore, uh, because that, that, that becomes less of a, of a commonly used method of execution, um, but continues to be used in some other countries for a little bit longer. Okay. Um, what about like drownings? Did they 
say you know if you if you sank in your life heavier than a duck so, or whatever that's the test uh and, and so if you put a witch and she um i'll try to get what it is if she floats then she's a witch if she sinks then she's not uh or or he uh not all witches were women by the way there oh, were okay. some men who were executed for, for making packs with the devil as well and were, were um, they called wizards or they were they were they still called witches you know I, I i'm not sure to be off the top of my yeah. head i'd have to go look that back up again whether they used a different term okay i think sometimes they did sometimes they didn't sure um you know, you know what they talked about was witchcraft and having packs with the devil more than you know certainly when when you were talking about the popular image of a witch it would be a woman that they had the idea of women who could you know fly in a broom to meet with with satan or you know there were a, a number of, of images that were common parts of, of the lore of witchcraft mm-hmm. uh some of it carries through to modern time some of it doesn't uh i guess with shows like grim maybe a little bit more of that lore has kind of come come back into yeah. Uh, modern understanding perhaps i remember something uh, about like teenage girls playing with eggs and they would spin them and then they would stop them and they would magically spin again i don't know if i'm just where i'm getting that from but i, I thought that might have been a, a thing i know there were some things going on with, with some of the teenage girls at the salem trials um yeah. i don't remember the specifics of it because you know mo- most of my research was in connecticut not mm. in uh salem um and, and, and with much of this, there are political issues that, that, that interact with, with religious issues in, in some of these witchcraft trials. Yeah. Well, so going back to, to, to New Haven then, didn't, did, did you say that no one, that they never uh, put anyone to death for heresy or yeah. witchcraft? So, so if, if you're going to say, okay, this is the most pure of the Puritan colonies or, or the most you know intense of the Puritan colonies, you would expect them to take the hardest line right. on witchcraft. But instead, what you see is the magistrate there. So Theophilus Eaton was the governor of New Haven for most of the time that the, the colony existed. He refused to allow spectral evidence into trial. Hmm. And just simply wasn't willing to go there. So spectral evidence is the idea of, you know, um, I, I looked at, at this person who I'm accusing of witchcraft and, you know, I just knew that, that, that they were a witch or I got this chill when they walked past me or I had this dream. And in my dream, I saw this as the mm. witch. These are these kind of supernatural things that were used in some of the other trials and other places. Yeah. And so in New Haven, that was just not admissible. Um, they did not torture suspected witches in New Haven. And for the most part, they didn't torture suspected witches they did a little bit in Salem, which they weren't supposed to do. They violated the laws. Um, by and large, in Connecticut, I don't think they tortured uh, suspected, which is certainly during the period that I was looking at, which is kind of the earlier Connecticut history. Um, there are one or two cases where, where they put suspected witches to the test and somebody drowns. Um, you know, again, the, yay, you're innocent, you drowned. Um, know, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Crazy. Yeah, well, it's it's um, just it, all that's so funny too. Not funny, but it's crazy how history comes down to us, how it's received. So like how I have learned about uh, Salem, the Salem witch trials versus how what what you can find in the documents. We're going back, and it's just like yeah, it just takes this shape and comes down to us, and it's more interesting that way. So let's just you know keep uh, propounding that. Well, 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 we tend to get our history secondhand. So what mm-hmm. a lot of people know about witch trials or puritanism comes from nathaniel hawthorne and the scarlet letter right or from uh arthur miller and the crucible or you know they so they're getting it uh, nathaniel hawthorne thought very uh little of the puritans hmm. you know one of his uh, ancestors his great grandfather was one of the judges on the salem witch trials and he was aghast by that and he was no fan of, of puritan um discipline uh, of the idea that you ought to live a holy life. He, he wanted to have a little bit more leeway. He didn't want to be seen as puritanical. Mm-hmm. Now, were the Puritans puritanical? I think you could make a good case they weren't. Right. Um, That's what I've heard so, of secondhand from like John Piper and, and those kind of guys. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so one illustration, Thomas Hooker was the founding pastor of um, Connecticut, of Hartford, Connecticut. Would you expect that a Puritan pastor would be a heavy drinker or, or would drink alcohol at all even maybe? 
No, no, no. Because that's not puritanical, so, right? Yeah. Right. It's not. But when you look at his estate inventory, so again, I'm a lawyer. I look at these kinds of nerdy yeah. documents. Uh, <laughs> he had a, He has in his inventory of his estate after he dies, he has a mash ton and he has not one, but two stills. Whoa. So a mash ton, I don't know if you're familiar with brewing. Mm -mm. Um, I know mashes. Yeah. Does, does that yeah, mean he has so, a ton of mash liquor? So a, a ton is a container in which you mash grain okay, to okay. Um, extract the sugars to yeah. be able to then ferment that and then distill it or to ferment that and make ale. So in New England, they you couldn't just go to the store to buy a case of Budweiser or whatever yeah. other. Uh, okay, so we're talking about British people. So Fuller's Ale, we'll say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can't go just get Fuller's London Ale in, on the streets of Hartford. And so there were Brewsters and Bre actually it was mostly Brewsters then, women who were brewing beer as a side business out of their, their home. Uh, and so they would have a ton, T-U-N, uh, in which they would mash the grain and then they would extract the sugar from that and they would brew it uh, and, and sell it as ale. Or they would then put it in their still and distill it and sell it as strong waters, kind of a prototypical rum type drink, hmm. uh, probably not aged in barrels, probably not as good as, you know, modern day bourbon or rum or, or gin, what have you. Yeah. Um, but much of the laws that you see or, or much of the, the issues that you see deal with the relationship of alcohol in daily life of, you know, can you play shuffleboard at your local pub? Well, no, there are rules against shuffleboard because if you're literally there are rules against shuffleboard, um, <laughs> um, which again, I grew up in Florida. And, and so when you think of shuffleboard, <laughs> you think retirement communities, um, you don't think about this being a major drinking game. But I think the concern, I think, because I have to kind of read between the lines a little bit is the idea of if you have a shuffleboard court at your pub then that means people are going to hang out there and socialize for longer and, and they more. might be prone to drink to excess. Yeah. And if they drink to excess, then bad things might result from that. You might get people getting into fights. You get people who are flirting inappropriately and you might have more misconduct. Hmm. And so the concern in new, in new England, isn't, are you drinking or not? Um, it's, are you drinking in a way that's causing social problems? Yeah. Are you drinking in a way that's leading you to then act in sinful ways? Um, and, and so they don't want people, you know, uh, having a, you know, kind of a secret tavern in their living room, because if you're sitting there drinking, then it might result in misconduct. Hmm. And so what they want is you can buy your ale, you can buy your stronger liquor, but take it home and drink it at, at home or you're not going to get into trouble. Drink it with your meal. Uh, drink a, a tonic uh, of alcohol before you go to bed for your stomach's sake. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a health potion, you, you probably aren't drinking very much water back then because, you know, they don't know how to purify water right. uh, back then. And, and some of the early modern sources suggest that water is how you get sick. Drinking too yeah. much water is how you get sick um, because the same river that you might be pulling that water from might also be where the farmer upstream is slaughtering his cattle. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and so it may not be healthy water. Uh, whereas if you're drinking an ale, the alcohol is hopefully helping kill any germs that was in the water. Well, the boil process of brewing oh, right, and, right. and the alcohol both combine to kill any germs in the drink. So it's safer. Yeah. I've, I've also heard that um, I haven't checked this myself or anything, but that Puritans emphasize like delighting in your spouse kind of stuff where uh, yeah. uh, other folks before that where, you know, it's kind of a contractual or like an obligation. It's, where, where Puritans were saying like, no, this is your spouse delight in them and, and give them your, their, their conjugal rights. Yeah. So, um, the, the idea of companionate love really flourished among Puritan writers, amongst hmm. Puritans. Uh, if you read, uh, letters amongst, uh, you know, Puritans who had to travel. So John Winthrop, I mentioned earlier, uh, had to travel back to England and leave his wife. Uh, so he, the first time he came to new England, he left his wife in England, Later, he brought his wife over, but then had to travel back to England on business. And these letters that you see back and forth between he and his wife are, are legitimate love letters. Mm. Now, there's also, you know, business issues, you know, make sure you buy this. Don't forget to do that. But there's a lot, lot of, you know, them talking about how they miss each other and wish that they could be together mm. and saying nice things uh, about each other. Uh, and that's something that is kind of a, a, a new and emerging thing amongst them. 
Hmm. Uh, you know, prior to that, in many cases, marriage would be a, a business arrangement of, right. you know, we're, we're, a, a woman from one family might marry into another family because it helps promote the interests of that family, uh, either in terms of business or in terms of politics, politics. Um, or you're getting married because somebody is pregnant and, okay, we need to have legitimate children. Um, and so sometimes, you know, marriages take place a little bit more quickly be- because people got a little carried away. Um, but Puritans frowned on that version of marriage. You know, they frowned on, on getting carried away romantically. Mm-hmm. And that was one of their concerns about alcohol was that it not lead to uh, what we would today called an unplanned pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, tended to have at least as part of what they were doing a, a companionate view of marriage uh, that was based on, you know, the beginning, I, the beginnings of ideas of romantic love, which, which really I think came into its own uh, um, during the Victorian period, a little bit later uh, r- romantic views of marriage really began to flourish. Um, yeah. I picked that up from, from CS Lewis uh, talking about the Puritans first and saying they, they mm-hmm. weren't as puritanical as you, as you think. And then writing, right. I think in, in the allegory of love, he's tracing that theme of romantic love moving from your, uh, your mistress, because the, the one you're forced to be married to, you don't really, you're not really in love with, but you're in love with this mistress, then to moving to, uh, to your actual spouse. And then that being an allegory or, or metaphor for the, the love between God and man or yeah. m- mankind. And that, that's so interesting. But another thing that you brought up was uh, divorce and how, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Puritan view, or, or maybe it was particular to, uh, to the areas that you studied. So one of the things that really interested me, uh, and I was not expecting this when I started doing my dissertation research is I began to see a handful of cases first in New Haven and then in Connecticut where a spouse who has been abandoned, in some cases abused, uh, in some cases simply cheated on, uh, is granted a, a, a divorce and given permission to remarry. Now, in England at the time, uh, the, the most you could get if your spouse abandoned you or cheated on you or abused you was a separation of bed and board. So you no longer had to live with the person. Um, but what that really meant for the wife uh, who was more often than not in England, the aggrieved party was they could go, she could go live with her parents uh, and not have to live with this abusive or cheating husband. Uh, but she was never free to remarry because marriage is a sacrament in, in mm. the English view. And so if it's a sacrament, it's permanent. It can't mm. be dissolved. The Puritans took a different view of marriage initially in New Haven, and then it spread. Um, at least I think it's initially in New Haven from my research. Um, I, I haven't found any earlier cases of divorce uh, in the other colonies there. And so they saw marriage as a blessing from God on a person. And it was a gift to have a spouse who could help you move forward in your own sanctification, who could help comfort you in uh, your weakness, who could meet your needs sexually. Certainly that was an important part of the marriage relationship with Puritans. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of Again, I'm going to go with the stereotype of this woman who's been aggrieved by her husband who has gone and married somebody else in another place and abandoned her. Um, She ought to be free to remarry because she is an innocent party and she deserves the comforts of marriage that her husband already has with this new spouse. And so those are the first couple of cases. And then you begin to see some variations on the theme. Um, One of the most colorful cases on this issue. Uh, involves a, a man by the name of John Ufoot, who is brought to trial in Connecticut. Uh, I'm drawing a, 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 a I'm drawing a blank on which town, but in Connecticut, he's brought to trial because his father's maid has gotten pregnant and has named him as the father of this unborn child. Whoa. A, a, and this was a common occurrence uh, in, in Puritan in, in New England society. You know, people. They have sex. They get pregnant when, when, when even before they're married, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, the magistrates call in the couple and say, "Okay, you know, this is the punishment that you're going to have to go through." Um, but John, we're really curious about this because a couple years ago you were before us for an annulment of your marriage to another woman, and in that marriage you swore that you were impotent and unable to, um, you know, to. to um, 
you know, seal your marriage uh, with sexual union. Uh, you know, you're unable to consummate your marriage. Uh, so what happened? It's like, well, I lied. <laughs> and, and so then they begin calling in witnesses. Uh, they resummon the first wife to, to come back Whoa. and testify again. And, and they really dig into this case. And, and it turns out that multiple of uh, the man's friends and family say, yeah, we heard them fighting all the time. We heard that first wife say that she was never going to sleep with, with her husband, that she didn't love him, um, and really accusing her of being uh, insubordinate and, and effectively a shrew. Uh, and, and she first comes and says, no, 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 that's not the case. And then a few more witnesses come and says, okay, maybe I wasn't quite as nice to my, first, as to my husband as I should have been because she's gone on and, and remarried already. Okay. So what it begins to look like is, okay, she, she didn't love her husband. She loved this other person with whom she was seen maybe acting inappropriately and uh, while she was still married to the first one. Um, and so after the annulment, she then goes and gets married. Um, but what do you do as a magistrate in that case? Do you say, okay, well, wife number one, you're guilty of adultery because you lied to get your annulment of marriage and, and therefore we're, we're going to sentence you to death for adultery? Whoa. Or do we say um, this is this is your, your your civil penalty, and we're not going to treat this as a criminal case, uh, and and we're going to move on in this. And interestingly, the magistrates say, okay, uh, you need to reimburse your husband for the money he paid for the for the to you in the first divorce because you you lied and you compelled him to lie because you had him wrapped around your finger, um, and and then you're going to have to go and confess your sins both in Hartford and in the new town where you're living. Um, again, I don't remember which town she had moved to, but she had moved to one of the other towns in the colony. Uh, and so she had to go publicly confess her sinfulness here and there. I think they might've ordered her to be whipped uh, for, for wow. her sinfulness, but I'm not sure about that. Um, and, and then they give uh, John permission to marry his father's maid because they would rather have a legitimate child than an illegitimate child in the colony. Hmm. Um and so there's this really interesting case where they could have said, okay, we're going to stick to the letter of the law. And if your uh, annulment was invalid, we're going to treat you as still married and we're going to punish you for adultery. And adultery was a capital offense Wow. because that's what, okay. So, so that's what Leviticus says is the, the punishment for marriage. Right. 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 And, and if you are a Puritan who believes the Bible and wants the Bible to influence everything you do, then you're going to have, capital crimes that match with what Leviticus says or, and what the Bible says generally. Mm -hmm. But they, they're kind of hesitant that there was, I don't think anybody was, if I remember correctly, and, and I'm a little fuzzy on this. So again, don't, don't, don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think anybody was ever hung for adultery in New Haven, but somebody was hung one, at one point, one person was hung. No, in Connecticut, one couple was ordered to be hung for adultery but then somebody helped them escape from jail and they fled to uh, New Amsterdam, which is today New York, uh, where the rules were different. Uh, and, and so I don't think anybody was actually hung for adultery in either colony. Wow. Uh, there might have been one person who was hung. I can't remember which colony, um, but the, the legal records don't ref don't show who it was that, that was hung. Uh, whereas in Massachusetts, you get a, full, a few cases of people being hung for adultery, but not very many. They're trying to find ways to work around that law, I think, is my reading of it. Yeah, man, that's so interesting. I wonder I wonder if I, – uh, I don't think Scarlet Letter is a true story, right? It's not based on a true story or anything? No, it, okay. it's a fictional story that, that um, Hawthorne made up. So if I, – I forgot – I read the book in high school. I forgot the woman's name. But if she had a, a certificate because her husband was, was presumed dead or whatever, then the whole Scarlet Letter situation would have never came about. She right. could have, could have she, been with him. It would have been fine. She could have been. Um, I, I can't remember the timing. So, so Hester Prynne is her name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm, Alfred uh, something, Dim something or another, is the pastor and the minister in that one. I forget his last name. Uh, and, you know, her husband shows up right. as she's being brought to the stocks, to stand in the stocks and to, and to wear the, the scarlet letter. After uh, like and years again, of being presumed dead or something, right? Right. Yeah. So, so yes. Had she gone to the court and said, you know, I, I, I want my husband declared dead. I want to be free to remarry. She could have. Uh, the minister, 
was not married, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and yeah. Scarlet Letter. Um, but so, yeah, they could have gone and, and, and gotten the, the first husband declared dead and, and gotten married and, and lived happily ever after. Yeah. Um, but the pregnancy kind of made it inconvenient. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, wow, we, we spend uh, just huge amounts of time here. For for me, it's like it's all kind of in the same. For you, you have all the dates and times. Uh, thanks so much for 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 agreeing to do this and to for going back over your dissertation. For my, my audience, they know because I've said this a few times, but it's always worth saying again. You guys spend so much time in just intricate details of your dissertation. And then we come along and expect you to know everything from this huge time period. You spent, you know, five years or whatever in this one era. And so I, I'm so grateful that you were, you were willing to, to, you know, rehash all these different parts. I think our audience is going to really love this. I hope your audience hasn't fallen asleep by now. Um, <laughs> because, you know, to me, this is interesting. I can see to a lot of people that may not be quite as interesting. So I'm glad that you find it uh, engaging and, and want to talk about it. Yeah, um, super interesting. But yeah. Yeah, well, um, so that's going to it's gonna have to do it for us now here. But uh, uh, Dr. Simmons, I would I would love for you to come back on and talk talk history sometime. Uh, that'd be great. Sure. Awesome. That would be, that'd be fun. Awesome. Well, uh, we talked about a lot of stuff, folks. Uh, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. 